Welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amade, host of World Poetry Open Mic and The Michael Amade Show, musician, author, poet, the publisher of World Poetry Magazine, and the founder of Creature and Ghost, a fictional podcast studio. My compatriot and co-conspirator in this project is Clifford Brooks, poet, host of Dante's Old South on NPR, founder of the Southern Collective Experience and publisher of the Blue Mountain Review. In this episode, Cliff and I interview Angela Dribben. After 22 years as a massage therapist, Angela Dribben's scoliotic spine gave her reason to retire and turn to writing. She found herself at Breadloaf a few months later, then on to Randolph College's MFA program. From there, her work made its way into journals such as the Crab Creek Review, Cider Press Review, San Pedro River Review, Blue Mountain Review, and Crack the Spine. Her first collection, Every Girl, is now out with Main Street Reg. And that's just from her bio. The proof is in the writing. Here's an actual comment on her new book, Every Girl. Wordsworth wrote that any great writer must create a new taste by which they'll be enjoyed. In Every Girl, Angela Dribben doesn't just offer a new taste. She's created an entire menu. From tragically vivid poems about surviving military school to surreal poems exploring belonging, Dribben had me eating out of the palm of her hand. Dribben writes, To love and to see are not the same. And I agree. But I do both love and see this book. And that quote was by Paige Lewis. Now with that quote, we've set the stage perfectly for this incredible artist. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Angela Dribben. Today on This Business of Music and Poetry, we have Angela Dribben, feminist, retired hospice massage therapist, published poet, and essayist. Angela, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here with y'all. Well, I mean, I'm glad to see you again. We've um, we've worked before. You were on uh, my NPR show, Dante's Old South, a couple of months ago for mm-hmm. placing third in my the company's contest of women of resilience. And since then, your poetry has stuck with me until we finally got you here. And there's some big news to talk about, and I want to jump on that with both feet. You have a book just published. I want to hear all about it. Um, every girl and she's coming out she's my firstborn I'm very very excited about that and uh, she's coming out with Main Street Ray and uh, I'm just really looking forward to this and when I say my firstborn I am actually like being sincere uh, I have not been able to have a child and it was like a lifelong dream of mine right and um, I still, like, I still think maybe one day, like maybe one day it's going to happen. Like when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm 80, it could happen. And so uh, it's in the Bible, but, uh, mm-hmm. it but is. Um, this, uh, bringing this out into the world feels like, it feels like I did something that's going to last beyond me and maybe something that will be of service. And so it does feel like, like a firstborn. What what does the book include? I mean, it, it, a lot of people try to kind of take on a, a certain subject. What's the span of your book? Um, well, I'm a female, and I was born into a very traditional um, Southern culture and a very rural culture. So it is uh, male dominant. At least that's been my experience, and. Um, when when that happens you seem to be subject to 
to abuse and trauma because you don't have the same value as perhaps as your male counterparts. Um, you don't have the same voice or the same volume. And then I uh, followed a family tradition of the firstborn going to military school. But when it got to be my generation, girls were allowed at the military school. And so um, even though I was a, a female, I was the oldest and I went. And so that was another experience of, um, of being a, a little, uh, feeling a little less than or a little inferior. Well, you're a minority. I was, I was a minority there. There are 300 gentlemen and about 30 females. So it really walks through that. But I think the most beautiful thing about the book is not just that it speaks for those experiences, but that it also speaks to healing and hope and forgiveness of the self and others. And I think that's one of the most powerful things of writing is to be able to write your way out of where you are. You grapple, which you've just described, are huge, um, often stunting barriers to many in life. And you found your way over those through poetry. So when you, when you think about these big ideas, what I want to know is when you approach a poem that's potentially um, earth-shaking for you emotionally, how do you deal with that poem from inspiration to the last edit? With a lot of honesty. <laughs> and and um, I'll tell you what I mean when I say that. Like, so one thing I started doing is like when I know I'm going to write something, I start writing. I start asking myself about each line. Like, what are you really saying here? What does that really mean? Because a lot of times I haven't put that down, right? Like I get right up to it and then I come back. I draw back, you know, because that vulnerability is stinging. Um, and so I'm like, what are you really saying? And then I make sure it's in there. Um, but like, this is, so I was, I was writing something recently. I'm working on a memoir and I wrote in it. Um, y'all are not going to like this very much. Men are very unattractive. I, so I wrote that. I wrote the male body's really unattractive. And, um, my reader said, well, now you write this like it's a fact, but it's your feeling. And at the same time, my husband is walking across the room naked and I'm thinking, he's beautiful. And I was like, I'm angry. That's what I'm saying. I'm angry. And it was like, I have chills just, just talking about it. So then I went back and rewrote it. You know, I was like, I'm angry. And I've distanced myself from men it's there's a, a there's a prevailing thought that uh that poetry is a fantastic form of therapy and i agree and what i'm interested in is is are your thoughts on when you approach poetry as a means of therapy which i think that you, it's, it's unavoidable if you're going to be honest um i'm always interested in what do you think would be a balance between professional help and the poetry? Because I mean, sometimes they, they can maybe dig up things that are too big to deal with solo. What do you feel about that? Oh, 
That's a big question. Um, I, I think, I think I would have to say that if I was wrestling with something that I couldn't write my way out of, you know, if it was just sitting in my body, so I'm sitting in the chills, I'm sitting in the, that fire, you know, that, that whirring that happens like bees on the inside. And uh, if I could not write my way out of that, that to me is when I would go get, go see someone and see if they could help me find my way out. That's the best answer ever. I don't think I'll ever ask that question again. I don't think anybody's (laughs) going to beat that. I don't, I don't. Um, As far as formal training, and we had a a guest on our, our last show that talked about, again, this balance between technical training and what you're born with. How do you feel that works in, in your poetry? I think, I think we all have a story to tell and a story that only we can tell. And I know that sounds cliche, but I, I think it's pretty critical to believe. And I'll go back to that same reader that I said before who, you know, brought it to my attention that I was stating my feeling as fact and what was my real feeling as they read my work one of the things they said to me is i am most interested when you talk about you and i was like what like for so many reasons right like i'm important somebody cares about my story like and also like it's really intimate my story is really intimate and and all of ours are. So I think we all have the story that I really, I really think we're supposed to tell and share. But I think if we're going to do it well, we have to maybe also get outside of ourselves. And I think that involves reading. And I think the best education for me has been reading. Um, How does music play into your creative process? Um. I think every memory I have has a song attached to it, right? It is. Like Box of Rain. When I was 14 years old, I heard Jerry Garcia sing that for the first time as a Carter Fenley. And I swear I thought he was singing right to me. Like I was sure of it. And uh, I just thought, oh, I found family. You know, it's every moment I think in my life has that. Because when I read your poetry, there's rhyme and then there's music. And rhyme can be done by anybody that can figure out what that concept is. But the way you have melody woven into each line, it makes you tap your foot. And I think that that speaks to the ethereal component of poetry and music that are very, very closely connected, I believe, that I think sings to us internally, like you felt at the Grateful Dead concert. You know, it's it's one of those places. And again, you and I both, you know, Angela, we've talked about this. We're we're both on the, the spectrum. So to be around a large group of people is extremely unnerving. And I, I don't try to inject myself in this show all the time. I try, but I fail every time. But I remember being at a concert with like 30,000 people thinking I'm going to lose my mind. And as soon as the band came on, I forgot about everybody. Yeah. And I believe like the way you were speaking about the poems that move you is the same kind of experience you have with poetry. Yes, I, I would agree with that. And, and I have that same thing. Um, because I am, I am on the spectrum. I am very apprehensive about going to a concert, seeing live music, but I really need to because it inhabits me, you know, and 
wow, like something happens. Like Victor Wooten, I saw Victor Wooten, I think it was at Cat's Cradle one time. Uh-huh. I, I get chills. See, I get a lot of chills, I guess. But I've got chills right now. I mean, like, and you can't get that on his CDs. I bought them. You can't get it. It, it was only there, Cat's mm-hmm. Cradle. Victor Wooten is an absolutely a great example of what you're talking about. <laughs> and for anybody who has not uh, read the book, and maybe, I don't know if you have, have you read the music lesson? No. It's his Write book. It it's his book about being a musician. However, it is so much, it's about more about creativity and the flow in life. And it's almost like Carlo, Carlos Castaneda wrote a book about music. I mean, it's really fantastic. So I think for poets, I'd recommend it as well. But Victor Wooten's a great example because he lives in this, this flow and the feel. And I think we do the same with, with poetry. Listening to, uh, listening to you talk with, uh, with Cliff, one of the things that comes to mind too is, you know, there's a lot of people who've been through very intense situations in their life and things where they've, they've really had this, you know, a hard part of their story. And I think one of the biggest obstacles I keep hearing about the people run into when they want to express it is they can't seem to unlock that inside of themselves. It, do you have any, anything that you would share with someone who's listening to this who might be in that situation? They know they have a story to tell. They just can't quite unlock it, um, seeing that you have. Um, it, the thing that came to my mind when you said that is how many times I have said, um, so I was raped. Uh, I've been raped three times. And I would say, well, I got on with it. I'm fine. I got, you know, I was in a more than one abusive marriage. I got married again. You know, I'm fine. And um, it wasn't until I started writing. And when I would write, that was one thing. But when I would read it out loud, oh, my goodness, I, it, sh- it would shake me to my core. And I would just start bawling, you know, and, or, or, or you're writing it and you realize everything is making you angry and it shouldn't be right. The present or you're sick to your stomach, you know, and that is that stuff coming out. And we have, I, I, for me, I have to sit in it. I got to keep writing. I can't turn away and I can't walk away. I have to admit that it's hurt me. I have to admit that it's, that it's, that it's broken me, that it's made me like create my own culture of abuse, you know, and I gotta, and which is not to say that I'm to blame for things that happened to me. It's that I managed to recreate some of that and put it on myself. And, um, but I had to sit in it and reading it out loud. Anytime I read something and somebody would say, okay, now read it, I was struck by how much I was struck by myself and my story. Is that- in, in a way, it was like you had to, by, by writing it, you were still able to kind of keep it here or an internal thing. Uh, but then by speaking it, I can totally hear it. You're having to own it. And I think maybe there's a lot of people who've run into that, like, any situation in life that might be intense, a lot of times we're really good at getting through it and surviving. And we tell ourselves, I, I can survive, I can move forward. Um, and, uh, and then even writing it, okay, these are facts, sure. But reading it, I had this <laughs> happen 
you know, I can, I can completely resonate with, with what you're saying. Um, What do you think it was about poetry that made that the, uh, the ideal vessel for this? I've thought a lot about this um, because I'm kind of starting to turn a little more towards essay and I want, and I wonder about that transition and what is, what is it really signifying for me? And I think for, for poetry, I, I was thinking about this today. I think it was small pieces, you know, I could, I could work with small manageable pieces. It, it's like, an addiction, like when you decide, you know, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to smoke, smoke anymore, you know, and, uh, which I still miss smoking. And that's been like, I don't know, 20 years, but, um, but you just one day, just one day at a time. And I think that's poetry is a, a small manageable piece to deal with. There's something about poetry that seems to open it up for people too. I mean, you, you find poetry being uh, something that really, you know, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with vets, return, you know, vets and, and uh, disabled veterans and poetry seems to, poetry and music seem to be the things that, that unlock that. Um, and yeah. Do you think that any of it is um, the, the rules? Like if we don't, okay, so people try and put rules on poetry and there can be rules, right? But there can also be no rules. Do you know what I mean? So Absolutely. like, and I wonder, like when you were talking, I'm like, is that, is that part of it? Like the, the confines maybe, um, I, I find it really fascinating that as human beings, most of us are able to communicate our feelings more vividly when we're doing so in verse. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. so weird, but it's almost like we, we, we feel in verse. We might think in prose, but we feel in verse. I don't know. I, it, it's it's such a it's such a strange thing. But um, I am absolutely stealing that Amadei. I am stealing that. <laughs> if you don't put that on Facebook as soon as this is done, it's mine. Hey, man, even if I do, dig it, run with it. It's okay with me. I'm not, I, I think didn't create this. <laughs> there's 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 also I think um, with poetry you you can talk about things directly indirectly, like in those pieces. I love that idea. You do it in pieces, and you can talk about it in a lyrical sense. So it kind of it. It, it lifts some of the weight of telling the truth off, you know what I'm saying? And then again, I, I never thought about this, Angela. I mean, again, after I've, I used to, I, I used to laugh at the idea that prose writers should study poetry to become better prose writers and that it would make you choose words better. But I've never thought about the fact that once you've purged out the, the, the hard dense stuff that you can then take it and do better with it in essays. Um, is that what's happened with you? It, it is what's happened with me. And I like the idea about, lifting the weight of it that verse allows 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 that and i think that it does because right i know you asked me a different question no run with it because don't okay so i think this is this may be true in in all like uh in in prose too but i'm thinking about in poetry how often something dark and painful becomes beautiful because of the language and like, I, yeah, it lifts the weight, lifts the weight. Would you mind reading one of your poems right now? Yeah. Um, so this is one that is in the book and it is um, about the military school. It, it, uh, it is about the boys at the military school. And uh, so you have to kind of have that for context to 
to understand it. For the boys, some would say I owe you nothing more. My body has already soothed your fragile esteems. But I read of orphan bull elephants swept up by helicopters, transplanted to savannas far from their homes, without fathers or uncles to teach them how to be grown. Testosterone lifting their feet from the earth, stomping in the hoods of cars. Their bodies strong beyond their minds. What is there to do except forgive the young boy? Only a name tag bearing any semblance to home. The blue jeans his mother chose just for him. T-shirts she washed and dried with sheets of softener replaced by the quartermaster's rough estimate of waste and inseam, and a net laundry bag. Wash your own. Men now. But you weren't. You were boys. Boys in boots performing with rifles, learning how to be men from boys in boots performing with rifles. Boys cannot know how to care for young girls who will grow into women, mothers and wives bull elephants, limbs outgrowing their own muscles. That's why they call it growing pains, you know, because it hurts, because bone grows faster than muscle and the muscles torque on the bone until they feel like breaking, but we don't. Damn, Angela. <laughs> that is, okay, let me say that's, I got to chew on that for a minute. You're reading, the way you read, it's like listening to Patsy Klein. Did you, how did you practice your, how did you, how did you practice that? Because nobody ever talks about that. And reading is such a quintessential part of getting your idea, your sense of self across. How did you, how did you get your poetic voice? How did you stamp that down? Um, so I don't really practice but I write in my own voice, mm -hmm. no matter how many times people tell me my syntax is wrong. I just write in my own voice um, because anything else feels fraudulent to me. And so it just, it is how I speak. That is the most succinct. Again, you are scoring, you're batting a thousand today. Um, <laughs> and I'm serious, you own this show. I mean, it, it, to, to, when people ask, again, like, how do you find your voice? It's this elusive thing, and I'm not making a small bit about it because it is a challenge. How do I sound? And the way you sound are the words you use. You know, how do you sing in the shower? How do you talk to your husband? How do you talk to your dog? How do you talk to your friends? I think that that, it, it, you feel that in your poetry, and that's why it comes across so powerful because I don't have to get past who you're trying to be to get to who you are. And there, again, is that that's fearlessness. You know, I had a mentor that told me one time that, Poetry is different from all of the writing because when you get up and read it in front of people, you're standing there naked. You can't blame this on something that you made up or another person that you met in life. This is only you. Um, when you got up to, for your first poetry reading, what was that like for you? Um, when I'm reading, I feel more in my body than any other time. So it felt good. <laughs> It's true. It, it, it's, did you, it, was there like a deep anxiety until you got up there and began to read and then it all just quieted? 
Is that the way it is for you? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the first time I read, there was a group. I went to an open mic, and that's where I read for my first time, and everybody knew each other, right? I mean, they'd all been going to this open mic for centuries. I don't know. And they all knew each other and loved each other's work. And I was like, they're all talking over me. And, you know, and I'm like on the aisle seat, like I can cut out any moment, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, and I was like, it, but when I got up and started reading, it was like, it's like, it's like a weighted blanket, you know, and that's a good thing. Like it just. Because when you're honest, it's scary, but then it's gone in a good way. You know, you, you give it up every time you read and, or at least, I mean, that's what I, that I hope is for for you. Um, but I, I think that, what do you think about like, if, if, if you ever lost that nerve, if you ever, if you didn't get a little nervous before you got up and read or did a show or anything like that, do you feel like you'd lose some of that magic if you didn't take some anxiety up there with you? If I didn't have anxiety, I wouldn't know who I was. So <laughs> <laughs> how do you, I mean, and, and I won't get too far off base with this, but like, how do you, again, like on the spectrum, what, how do you deal with anxiety? Uh, that was, you know, finding out I was on the spectrum was actually really helpful mm -hmm. because I thought everybody was like me. So I thought everybody had this amount of anxiety and my husband's on the spectrum. And so you know, I was always telling them, well, everybody's like that. It's not just you. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. You're fine, you know? And then, and then he was like, by the way, I'm pretty sure you're on the spectrum and you need a diagnosis. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> well, then I started researching it and then I, then I started meeting with a, a, a um, person and that was when I realized, oh my God, I am so totally on the spectrum. Like, I mean, I am spectrumed out. Okay. And everything I do is spectrum me and my communication, like I have so much anxiety because, you know, other people, like, I think I actually like got myself out of an acceptance once because they, okay. So they, they send you your acceptance letter, right. And you're like dream acceptance. And they're like, you know, let us know you, you, you want to be in it and we're going to send you your contract, you know, right away. Well, let us know right away. We're going to send you your contract. Well, for someone on the spectrum, that means you're going to get that contract right away, right? Mm -hmm. And, well, no, like a week went past, I've sent an email, and then about passed, and man, I was sending emails to everybody on that staff. Hey, did y'all still want my poem? Did you decide you didn't, do you decide you didn't like me anymore? I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Right? I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, and they still haven't printed that poem. So yeah. there's that. <laughs> but think about this. I'm going to come to the team's defense. If they had just answered you, you'd have left them alone. It's a lack yeah. of professionalism. I think, this is, I think we're just hyper aware of you said get right back. So where you at, cousin? And if it's not cool, just tell me it ain't cool. and We will let it go. But I right. know your mama's name. I know your cousin's name. I know where you live. You know, I ain't being threatening. <laughs> but I will pony express you on what's going on, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it is, it, it honestly, Angela, it is awesome to be able to have somebody on the show that can, can laugh about this too. And I think that it applies to poetry as well as we've talked about the seriousness of the therapeutic quality of the work that if you can't laugh at some part of it, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Um, to back off that dour note, 
Um, I want to get on something that very few people talk about on shows like this, which I think is ridiculous, but Main Street Rag, how did you find your publisher and what's, what are they like? How did you get into that? What was from, from soup to nuts? How did you do it? I kind of had my own Main Street Rag for many years. Um, they're a North Carolina publisher and um, that was of interest to me. And one of my, one of my dear poet friends had her chat book through them. Uh, we make a tiny herd, Lucy Griffiths. It is an amazing, an amazing book. Um, and I knew that she had really enjoyed Scott Douglas and he had been a great support to her and it, it, it really promoted her. And um, so I, I thought, let me give him a try. And he has magazines like Cackalack and then the Main Street Rag Magazine. And I think they all uh, publish voices that are, are sort of like mine, maybe a little regional. They, they have several of those in there. And so I just felt like he'd be a good fit. And I sent it in and it was less than five days when they turned around and accepted it, which I thought was very thoughtful. And uh, it was very flattering, I thought. And as far as like picking out the, the cover and the kind of paper and the font, like how did all those little ticky things go with you? He, he lets, well, for me, and I mean, my understanding is it's for everyone. He likes the author to, before he suggests a cover, he likes the author to send one mm -hmm. because, um, you know, since I have so much trouble uh, communicating well with people and not totally ticking them off, I, I tend to uh, submit a little bit sometimes, you know, and try to, well, what do you think? Well, let's look at, you know, yeah. and I, so I asked him, I said, do you have any ideas for what you, you're thinking? And uh, he said, don't you have an idea? Like, you tell me what you want first, and then I'll tell you if it's not a good idea for, for your book it won't do well and I'll suggest something else and he said but at least I'll know what's on your mind you know and I thought that was really beautiful and I sent him the cover I wanted and he said this is great this is perfect and I like that about him too he he is a businessman and if you listen there's several good interviews out there about him and where he's talking about how he sees poetry and, and this is his income, you know, this is his business and uh, that's how he runs it. And he'll tell you straight up, like, here's where you want to put your focus for marketing. Here's what's going to sell you books. Here's what's going to get you attention. Don't do this. Don't buy into this, you know, and uh, I just, I think that's a real gift, especially for somebody who has no idea what they're doing. The fact, and, and that's why, I mean, again, and like, I'm going to put it on this show. We need to have him on Amade. We need to, if you can hook us up, Angela, I would love, because the idea, it, 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 the, it's, it, to, to anybody who, again, is business minded, you know, and it, it's almost like that's a prickly cold word and it's not, you know, it is, you know, you've worked extraordinarily hard and, and hurt and bled and gushed this out, refined it, honed it got it into its, its most compact and pure form as possible. And then you put a book of it out that someone accepts. Doesn't it seem like you want it to sell too? Yeah. To maybe you make a little bit of money on it as well. And it's not a callous thing and you'll see a lot of artists locked down, but it makes me feel so much happier for you that you have somebody who actually understands, okay, here's the book. Now let's get to the next hard part, you know, and it's not the hard part being in a way that uh, it's meant to deter anybody. 
but it, it, it takes some time to understand social media. How do you sell? And to have somebody there as a publisher who understands how it works and freely gives you that information is a rare find. Um, tell me his name again. M. Scott Douglas. M. Scott with, Douglas. With Main Street Rag. And, uh, yeah. Good guy. Angela, I want to hear another poem. <laughs> um, okay. Do you want to hear another military school one, or would you rather hear um, something different? Something different. Okay. Okay. I love this one, and it's got music in it. <laughs> Consider this a love letter to my father's rigid inflexibility. I smoked pot in an old tobacco barn with a boy playing slide guitar along with Robert Johnson. Squeeze my lemon until the juice runs down my leg. Smoke held tight and hot in my lungs. That's a Zeppelin line. Daddy had shelves of albums, Humble Pie, Elton John, Moody Blues. He and Mama listened to Cheech and Chong after we went to bed and they laughed. I measured his love for music by the size of his speakers, big. His love for mama by the number of notes he left her, giant. His love for me by the things he taught me. I did not know what I was counting. Yeah, said the boy, they ripped them off. At home, I pulled daddy's album off the shelf, waved it in the air. They stole these lyrics, never paid him a dime or gave him any credit. A foot taller than me, twice as wide, he spun around, slammed his hands against Formica. We don't talk about Led Zeppelin that way in this house. What he meant to say, what is the next part of me you will walk away from? Virginia ham, left over from Sunday. Just like Daddy showed me, I mayonnaise sunbeam white bread, four pieces for him, two for me, smooth Hellman's quarter inch thick, crust to crust without deviation. Sliced salted flesh crumbling into bite-sized chunks. I don't know when Daddy walked up. All I heard was, we do not cut against the grain. On my way out the garage door, I looked back to see his fist contact the freezer door. Had I been looking right at him, I would have seen four days straight driving a truck, quick naps on the side of 220 North, slumped over the wheel, no time to even get out of the seat. At 20, I had enough cash to buy a floor-length pencil skirt set high above my waist in midnight blue with petite etched violets. A slit rose up the front of my thigh past the place where thighs began to widen. I undulated in the mirror at the end of the hall, Caught up in the shadows, I hadn't noticed Daddy in his recliner. Newspaper lowered, sadness brimming. Watching the daughter he planted dreams for. Husband, babies, teaching Sunday school. You don't need to dress like that. You're a natural beauty. In other words, I am scared for you. In other words, I love you. that I might not let you off the show. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 and, and, and I, let me, I mean, let me quantify that. Um, it's the, it's the tackling and it's, it's it, I feel it in me, the chills is again, that's what it is. The fact that you, you get afraid and almost uncomfortable, you, you ease up on these intensely personal things and then you pull back 
so that we can breathe. When you, is there a cadence that you think about when you write or again, is it just how that flows from your mind? I think that's, that's how, how it flows in my mind, you know, that building and that release, that building and that release. Because, and again, I, I kind of, I get heat for this sometimes, but I don't think that can be taught. I don't think it can be taught. I think that you can learn, and I'm not being snobby about this. I mean, you can learn every technical skill that will make you a, an adept writer, but you, you, you can't capture that natural breathing. And that's what your poetry does, is it breathes, and sometimes it holds it longer than it does the next time. It's phenomenal stuff. And before we let you go, tell us again about your book, what it's called, and where people can go and buy it. Um, it's called Every Girl. And if you uh, ever want to, you can hashtag Every Girl. Help me out with that. But um, it's called Every Girl. And it's from Main Street Rag. And right now, it's up for advanced sales. So it's $8.50. And once it goes to print, it'll be $14. So it's a pretty, pretty sweet deal. And you can find me. Can I say this? Yes, please. All that good stuff. All of it. Um, you can find me, and it'll be easier for you to find anything else about me, uh, on Facebook at Angela Driven, or Instagram at Angie Driven, or Twitter at Angela Driven. Um, I get a lot of anxiety about social media, so it's a pretty big deal that I'm out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I really, I love having some friends and some connection out there. So if you get a chance to find me, please do. We will. We will. This was one of the most emotionally in tune and technically technically sharp shows I think we've ever done Mike what do you think I'd agree I'd agree thank you so much for uh, for everything you brought Angela and uh, best of luck with the book and anybody who's interested in learning more about you and reading more of your work definitely should check it out Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. We also want to say thank you to Angela Dribben for being such a great interview. You can find Angela on Facebook at Angela Dribben or as Angie Dribben on Instagram. You can find her book, Every Girl, at MainStreetRagBookstore.com. You can find Cliff Brooks at CliffBrooks.com and at SouthernCollectiveExperience.com. You can find me at MichaelAmade.com or at WorldPoetryOpenMic.net. Music has been provided by the fantastic, phenomenal Justin Johnson. You can find him at justinjohnsonlive.com. This podcast is meant as a forum where poets, musicians, and artists of all kinds can come and discuss the ties that bind the real world to creativity. We aim to provide you with practical information that you can incorporate into your own life. Until next time, take care of yourself. Treat yourself and others kindly. Do the hard work. Conquer your obstacles creatively. Remember to follow your heart, for it's easy to lose your path in this business of music and poetry.